All right. Let's say a prayer and get rolling. Almighty God, the Father, through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome death and opened the gate of everlasting life to us. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of our Lord's resurrection may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. So, I got extra copies of the transcript of this podcast or this interview. I was sitting over there if you need one yet. Um, What are your questions? Good. Okay. (laughs) So, so here's what I think we'll do. There are. I'd like to. I'd like to make some headway, and I'd like to finish this. I'd like to do this today. Um, first of all, I was thinking about. I posed this question to you last time, and I. I don't know that we came up with an answer for it. And so, I wanted to throw it back to you a little bit and see if you can think about it. Um, uh, the, the people are often parsed, parsed themselves, parse humanity into um, bodies and and then spirits, bodies and souls, and then the parts of our bodies are interchangeable, right? Which is, you know, a, an okay way to think about things if, for instance, you've got, you want to cut your hair, right? You wish your hair were shorter, and so you cut your hair. Everybody says that's okay, right? Or if you um, have one leg that's longer than another, right? You, you're okay saying, well, I wish my legs were the same length, right? Um, so now, so... So here's the question. What's the difference between that and saying, I wish that I, who am a man, were a woman? What's the difference? I think that's a big big difference. Okay. Because you want to be somebody else. Okay. So now I'm going to press this, right? So my legs are not the same length. I want to be... Not somebody who has legs of two different lengths, but somebody who has legs of the same length. That's a, is that somebody wanting to be somebody else? That doesn't affect you socially. Okay, so then there's this, well. Your legs are different. I can't run as fast. I mean, people don't, they may look at you a little bit differently, but they don't perceive you to be somebody else because your legs are different or because you cut your hair, you're still. Okay. The same soul, the same values the same beliefs. Okay, so this is good. So we can, you get a hint of the difference because of, because of you're the same socially. So there are certain parts you can change without evidently changing in the eyes of others who you are, right? Um, okay, so that's true. But is that, is that I think, and I th- so I think it's fair to say that this is, a, this is a clue, this is a hint as to why there are different kinds of changes, well, let's get to the core of it. What's really the difference, Rachel? Well, I would say that it matters what your motivation in changing that is. Like, if, if you're trying to fix your legs because it's messing up your back or something because they're different, then maybe that's a good reason to do it. But if you're just doing it because you think you look weird and you look like everybody else. Uh, that's good. So I'm a big fan always of... Uh, asking the question, what are your motives, right? So, that, and that's certainly true. You can do, you can cut your hair for all the wrong reasons, right? Um, you can, uh, you can not shave because you're lazy, right? All of these, all these wrong reasons for doing things. So what's your motivation? 
Um, that's a good. That's a good question. Now, so that would be that's a um, a way to, to to sort of assess a lot of different situations. Um, now, if you say of somebody who is a man who who feels they ought to be a woman, um, the motivation you could have a pure motivation. Say, um, I my body is not in sync with my soul. Right, I'm out of alignment. It's not the way it should be. Um, something's wrong. So in, in that case, the motivation is not, um, you know, I wish that people would, people would afford me the respect that's given to a man instead of a woman, right? Um, in fact, that's the opposite of what happens to this fellow that we're talking about here, right? In the, at the beginning of the interview, Krista Tippett says uh, he went from the assumed authority of um, masculinity to the assumed vulnerability of, of womanhood, right? Okay, so dig a little deeper. Keep going. This is good. Yes. If you make your legs the same length, it doesn't hurt me, but it's because it's like the hurt. Okay. Okay. Um, that's good. So there's there are um, side effects, and that's certainly true. Um, although. So this, again, this is another good way for us to. So what, what we're asking right now is, a, is an ethical question. Is it uh, we're, we're parsing things into categories so that we can decide what is good and what is not good? And so what you've effectively said is that motivation determines uh, goodness in, to some degree or another. The side effects determine goodness to some degree or another. If I'm hurting somebody else, um, that is probably a good clue that it's not. It's not a good thing. And also socially, right? If I'm, if I'm claiming to be somebody who I'm not, right? if, I'm putting, if I'm lying about myself, then that's probably also not a good thing. But in some sense, these are all... Now, this is interesting um, because this is the way we tend to think about things. These are all really consequentialist notions of ethics. Now, so, there's, so you say, the way we decide whether or not something is good is based on the consequences of it, um, which is... Can, can, can get you into trouble sometimes, right? You can, you can find yourself in a dilemma, for instance, right? So I've got to decide whether or not I'm going to save one person or save five people. Well, the consequences are clearly better if I save, one, save five people as opposed to one people. Therefore, it is good for me to kill one person and save the five. It's not so cut and dried, right? Consequentialism only gets you so far. Go ahead, Mary. So I'm going to go back to creation. Yes, Yes. Good. That's it's okay. This is it's perfect. This is the core of creation. So, uh, go ahead, um, Carol. Say what you got to say. Um, I'm going back to what you said. You don't have an answer for it. Really common, but it's, okay. What do you do with the statement you said that I am in conflict? Right. My soul. Is in conflict with my body. My, then my question is, okay, what do you do with that conflict? How do you handle it? Right. So, so now normally the way we... 
the, just generally the way we handle things is, so if I, if I have one leg that's longer than another and my body is in conflict with itself, I do what I can to rectify it, right? I wear one shoe that's taller than the other or I have surgery. Um, so you say, what? You say, well, if it's possible, then it's probably okay. If it's possible, if it's within the realm of possibility, then it's okay. So now then, if it's possible for me to make my body and my soul come at least closer into alignment, then it's probably okay. But are we going about this backwards? Probably. Because one thing I was thinking of, 50 years ago, some people were still in conflict. I mean, they were in conflict. Yeah, right. So perfect. Okay, and now here's the thing that's we we often get very historically short-sighted, just generally speaking. Um, uh, Antonin Scalia, Jessica reminded me of this just recently. Antonin Scalia, in one of his Supreme Court decisions, said he's he was famous for these really biting. If you ever get a chance to read his decisions, his are opinions. They're fantastic, and he said, "What." Are we just going to say that all of a sudden we now have it right and that history expanding to the beginning of time, that everybody was wrong? If, if you're in that position, you better check and make sure, right? You can't just make those sorts of decisions on a whim, right? So that goes exactly to what you're saying, right? What happened 50 years ago? And now here's the, here's the really, um, I think, one of the compelling um, uh, co- consequences, one of the, one of the, uh, another compelling consequence of saying, that my gender is determined by how I feel about myself as opposed to my biology, all of a sudden you're saying, if gender is my experience and not my biology, then you're saying that that's true for everybody. That can't just be true for me, right? It can't be true that everybody else's gender is determined by their biology and just mine is determined by my experience. Now we're in a, now we're in a world where the way that we normally assess a person, right? Are you a man or a woman? Uh, it's totally out, th- out, of the, out the window. Suddenly you have to, suddenly they've been doing it wrong for all of history. And that's, and that's I mean, again, this is a consequence and that's a, that's a, bit of, that's a problem. Um, some people, and if, and if you're serious about, you know, uh, these sort of principles, you'd be willing to say, well, that, yeah, they had it wrong all along. Um, go ahead, uh, we're going to come back to what Mary said, but go ahead, Tina. Um, I thought about this, you know, had two things that I've come into. Um, first one, there is a, a psychological dis- condition where you think your arm or leg doesn't belong to your body. Right. It's like not just one's short or long, it really doesn't belong to you. Yeah. And there are very few doctors who will actually remove that arm, a healthy arm or leg. They treat the condition and try and help you find peace with this thing that you don't think is yours. Sure. Um, it's interesting that they treat that one way, yet your gender another way. Yeah. And then I was also reading about, you know, the, the lady who tried to, you know, she thinks she's a, a black woman. She's a white woman, but she thinks she's a black woman. She's not a very nice person. You know, she's not doing it in a nice way. And, and like, the black communities rejected her. They don't like her. They say, no, you can't do this. So... Why are there some issues where it's okay to say, yeah, we should, we should change your gender to make you match, but then these other things, they say no. Right. This is be- and so th- this is great because this, um, we are not good consequentialists. 
If we say, oh, we're going we're gonna to make our decisions based on what the consequences of our actions are, we're terrib- we end up being, we do all kinds of things that are inconsistent. So um, the reason why you're not going to cut off my arm if I feel like it doesn't belong to me is because you're going to say, well, looking at you, I feel like you'd probably be better off with an arm that doesn't belong to you than an arm, than no arm at all, right? The doctor is going to make that decision, say, well, you're better off. Um, and it would be unethical for me to lop off your arm because you're going to need that arm at some point, right? Um, again, it's a, it's a consequentialist decision, right? What, what, what's the outcome going to be? Now, this is all really help, This is all really, really helpful for sort of um, knowing that we have to go back to the beginning. In, in some way, in some shape or form, we have to go back to the beginning because if we just look around at um, what's going what's to come from our decisions, um, we're going to only get confused. We end up, wind up in massive confusion. Go ahead, Krista. As the, uh, in earlier time, it was forbidden. Right. Oh, yeah. That's right. That, that I think that was much easier. Yeah. I'm yeah. So, I mean, even among Orthodox Jews, the, the, which is really interesting thing about Joy Layden, she's a, he's a professor at an Orthodox Jewish women's college. The Orthodox Judaism cites Deuteronomy 22, right, which is, says you shall not even wear the clothes of another of the opposite gender, right? It's just, you know, is that plain to them? And, and somehow there's this disparity that exists. Aaron, go ahead. Uh, well, what Tina was saying was just, I think one of the things that makes me feel most fearful about, um, about the way that our culture treats homosexuality is they compare it to the civil rights movement. Right. So it's always, if you, you, if you don't accept homosexuals, you're just the same as people back then who believed that black people were worse because of their really interesting that you're saying that they didn't accept, oh, you can be black or white, you can be either one. Like, people rejected that idea, and yet they want to be, and yet they want you to accept homosexuality and Right. Having your cake and eating it, too. Is this the way that, this is the way that, that, um, that you sort of can take a, a, an idea and uh, sort of propound it on the world, Right is uh, by insisting that you have your cake and eat it, too. Go ahead, Julie. I just thinking, even what Kristen said 50 years ago, this was not allowed or not. Is that because God and his, his creation and his law was more revered? Is, like, is, it, is the root of this now that our culture just kind of pushes away what is biblically true as not true, and therefore Right. Right. Exactly. So, and, and this is the this is the thread that you'll see in cultures throughout history. It's not just in America, but this the notion that of of moral neutrality. Right. So that um, that I can have my good and you can have your good, and somehow it's going to be okay. This is a really appealing idea because it means that nobody's going to hurt me. This is how I protect myself. I've got my good, you've got your good. But finally, it comes to a head when we say our goods conflict. They don't, they don't, uh, somebody finally has to win. And this is, uh, again, the, the notion of moral neutrality or moral authority. So it was in the 50s, 50 years ago, that there were clear, 
clearly given moral authorities in America. Whether or not they were the right authorities or whether or not they made the right moral statements is up for debate. But there was clear moral authority, right? There were institutions that said this is right and this is wrong. There were mores. There were social conventions. Uh, it, was, it was easy to tell whether or not it was right or wrong. Um, now, our position, now our position is those things that, you know, against the man, right? Uh, moral authorities are oppressive. Um, so, so you find yourself having to evaluate the world in this way, saying, which is, I find it to be a really interesting question, which is better or which is worse? Um, no moral authority whatsoever or a bad moral authority? Which one, which one is worse? <laughs> think, think about that one for a little while, right? Um, I mean, you can, you can go so, I mean, like, so if you want to think, uh, contemporary, which is worse, um, uh, Soviet Russia or um, America? In at, sort of at, at this at this point, if um, if you sort of let loose all the bounds of moral authority, it's a fair question. Which is worse? Okay, so th- so think about that um, now. Barb. Um. I went to a lecture this week, um, given it was actually on anxiety of children, but uh, the speaker made mention that one of the things happening in children is with anxiety is their reluctance to take on grief and so to work out that within themselves. Interesting. They blame everything on something or somebody. Yeah. I mean, not everybody, but this is what he was saying that the research is showing is happening children. And I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of like the same thing. It, you know, the person is, must be uncomfortable with themselves, and they're blaming it on, oh, it must be my gender. You know, because sometimes you say, oh, I'm a brunette, and I'm not having any fun, so I'm going to be a blonde. You know, it must be that. And they're trying to find something that's going to, I don't know, I guess make them feel better about themselves because they don't feel good about themselves. Right. So this might, because now technology allows this, this is something, another alternative than somebody could, oh, it must be that I feel like I'm a man instead of a woman, so I better do that because then everything is going to be okay. Right. But probably, I don't know if you talk to people after you thought, well, I guess she's one, but is everything okay after everything? Yeah. I mean, so the research is all mixed up there. You can find, I mean, you, it's always biased, right? Psychological research especially is, has a real problem. They're blaming something about themselves on their gender. Yeah, and I think, I think that that's an, a, a fascinating observation to say uh, that it is indeed an, a generational thing, too, um, so that we find, ourselves, we, find, uh, we find ourselves having been told that we, we can't do anything wrong or we, that our feelings can never be wrong. And so, as a result, um, if my feelings conflict with reality, it must be somebody else's fault. And this is just sort of the position we find ourselves in. I mean, this is the way the world has taken shape, right? However, I feel like now Christians are being told they're wrong about everything. That's true. So somebody's wrong. Somebody. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, right. That's exactly right. And which, you know, we can't have a, like I, you know, I said, what if I identify? I mean, it's all about identifying or something. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like if I identify. Uh, there's some Princeton famous. Professor, he he won an award. He was awarded an award, a lifetime award, because he apparently still believes in old-fashioned headship. They called it something else, but yeah. 
um, he was, of course, was petitioning. Yeah, Tim, Tim Keller. The, yeah. He said a petition because he wasn't, it was toxic to women, yep. to the LBG, you know, and so they stripped him of his, I mean, and I was just like, this is a lifelong thing of theology, but he had this one thing that didn't fit. Mm -hmm. and granted, it was kind of a big thing for, uh, I mean, Scott went to Princeton Seminary, so I understand the breadth of people's opinions there, but it, it was interesting to me that that just became the thing that he was identified with, not this lifelong right. thing. Right. And, and how, how what, what, what about his, I don't want to say rights, or I don't even know what to say there, but yeah. he, he that, that was it. Right. Absolutely, yeah, and that, I mean, you see, you see, it, you see it explode it right at, precisely at that point, right? Because if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to be consistent, um, then you have to do that not just for Tim Keller, but for. You have to say his his opinion. It's completely opposite. He, the, the, the protester that is completely opposite. Right. I think. Exactly, and I and. Have to, a, I have to acknowledge. One his opinion came from biblical scripture, right? Mm -hmm. you, it's like we just ignore in that case, right. completely ignore whether you think it's right or wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you have to at least, for academic purposes, acknowledge well, it's, a valid, it's a valid that's right. Well, and, and, and I mean, it's interesting because uh, there's so much to say about it. Because, I mean, the notion of that you get your authority from a book, this is not unique to Christianity, and yet Christians are, are particularly persecuted for that fact, right? You have some authority. You always do, whether it's science or whether it's a book or whether it's your parents or whether it's tradition. Whatever it is, you always have an authority. Um, and, and so, you know, what's the authority, what's the authority saying, well, a, a fellow who says that, talks about traditional headship, shouldn't be awarded anything. Well, the authority is this sort of misformed notion of liberalism, that, that, I, that harmful ideas should be suppressed. Well, that's not, that's, not the way, that's not the way the world works, or that's not the way... The world doesn't function that way because then you just end up killing people who disagree with you. That's, what, that's finally what you have to do, is you have to kill them, right? Because you can't, you can't live side by side with them. Um, okay. Let's get back to what Mary said, because um, uh, this is finally, this is finally um, the framework, the paradigm in which by, from which we can answer the question, what's the difference between um, lengthening my leg and having, having gender you know, alteration? Um, it's that we need to understand who we are as, as persons, right? So you remember Pastor Nelson talked about this um, the notion of original solitude. So God created Adam, he created humanity, and he created Adam, who was a male human being, right? Um, but it was not good for him to be alone. Uh, so in creating persons, in creating a person, God's creative work was not done yet. He, needed, he was going to create this complementarity, right? Man and woman, male and female. And so... Um, you have this sort of super category of person, but unlike with um, the length of my legs, so I can be, I can be a person that has um, one leg that's longer than another, or I can have a person that has legs of equal length, right? In either case, I'm still a person. And even further, in either case, I'm still either a male person or a female person. But you aren't a person without being either male or female, right? So if, you, so if you if you say, I'm a male person who has two legs of different length and I want them to be the same length, 
I'm still a male person, but my legs are different. Are, uh, the length of my legs are changing. But you say I'm a male person, and I don't want to be a male person anymore. You are at that point putting off your whole identity, because personhood doesn't come apart from gender, right? You're, there's no such thing as gender neutrality, right? There's no such thing as a person without a gender. Uh, uh, and, and so you, when, and this we see, I mean, it's evident in creation that God creates male and female, but it's also, it's also evident biologically, right? So again, the, you end up with this consequentialist way of approaching it. We look at people, when, when you are born, you are either a male or a female, and this is the way, this is how we tell, right? It's, it's obvious. Um, uh, and and that's, that's been sufficient. But now when we enter the realm of, of people's experiences, all of a sudden, there's, an, there's another dimension um, that, that, we, that we're, in, we're interested in protecting, the, the sanctity of that inner experience. Um, but finally, for us Christians, and, and also, I mean, I'd say, so, this, so going back to what Kirby said about using the Bible as authority, this is how we, this is how we solve or understand the, the difference. But you can also get at this just, just by observation about how the world works, right? So you don't get... I think, I mean, I think really simply, you don't get people without having male and female, right? The, the nuclear family, father, mother, child, right? This is, the world doesn't, people don't exist without that. Um, and so that is, that should at least be somewhat instructive to us about how the way the world ought to work. Um, and about the, the sort of the core identity of, or, our core understanding of personhood. You fit, in, you fit in these categories, right? These are the categories that the world exists in. Um, interestingly, um, you know, the, the, there's, always, there's always this natural impulse towards forming communities. Um, we, were, we were watching, there's a series of um, uh, short episodes Pastor Nelson pointed, me out to, pointed them out to me um, that sort of highlight, the, highlight across cultures the, the character of marriage and family in, in a really solid, substantial sense. And um, the, the point was made, you know, the way you, solve, the way you solve the problem of a lack of community, somebody, say for instance, an orphan, right? Uh, uh, you have a child who doesn't have a family, which is, you know, you, we ought to say, our reaction to that ought to be, this is a problem. This is not, it's not good for somebody not to have a community, for one thing, but even more, not to have a family. So what does, what's this, the solution there? Well, it's not to form a community, a new kind of community, based on some other characteristic, right? Um, just like, you know, the, it, it, it's sort of a, uh, a dead end to form a community based on being homosexual, right? Because there's no, there's no it's, a, it's a community without a future, right? There's, no, there's, nowhere for, there's nowhere for it to go. The only way that that community grows and is fertile is by, uh, by having it be a family, right? So what do you do with orphans? Well, you don't make a new kind of community. You find them a family, right? You put them in a family. Um, and this is, this is sort of intuitive. Um, and and so, what, so again, we find ourselves in this position where things that, things that are, are, are common sense require even more justification. And finally, finally you can't say, um, well, this is, just, this is just obvious. You have to agree with me. But you can say, this is just obvious and you're 
you know, I don't, I, there's something else going on. There's something, some other reason why you are discarding the obvious, right? Okay. So we answered that question. Got any other questions right now? Let's take a look at let's take a look at some of the uh, some of the stuff that Joy Layden says. Um, I'm gonna play I'm gonna play some snippets. Um, I got the I got it to work. I think Mary. We'll see what happens. Um, so here's number two. Take a listen. You, this is obviously an enormous, this is now we're walking on to this huge territory, but how would you begin to talk about your sense of gender, of your gender and the gender of others um, in your earliest life? You know, actually that connects to the includes one really genderless character, and that's God. Because despite the male pronouns, God doesn't have a body. And you know, when I was a kid, that was a very powerful, not really articulated sense of connection that I had because I had male pronouns, but I didn't feel like I had a body. Uh-huh. Okay, so now this just 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 uh, by sort of by way of getting back into the discussion. The really interesting thing is, you know, think of the title "I Am Who I Will Be." Right? It's such a clear aspiration to be like God um, in. Uh, not being bound to, or or understanding yourself as not not having this this human attributes, not being a creature, um, and we don't you don't have to know the biblical narrative of Genesis three of, of the fall into sin to, to know that wanting to be like God gets you in trouble, right? Um, but this is actually this is the perennial problem. This is what we this is what we always do. Um, we always try to be like God. Yeah. Any questions? Any thoughts there? Yeah, Krista. <coughs> Pastor, you know what, I, she cannot even deny that she was married and she had, she had the children. Right. Uh, they, they don't disappear. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's sometimes what I think, that she doesn't find really peace. In right. Right. Yeah, so we'll hear in just a minute how, um, how he has to acknowledge that, that, he's, that the best he can do is get close. The best he can do is get close to being who he thinks he ought to be because he, because finally he is not God, right? He can't do it. Can't, he can't be who he will be. Go ahead. Just real quick, in, in Genesis 1.27, it's interesting, like the two things he mentions, he made man in his image. So, yeah, there is a sense that we are like God. Yep. Like, oh, look, I'm like God, I'm genderless. But then the very next thing he says, male and female, he created them. Right. It's like, it's like what you're saying. Like he's trying to go into the creator right. instead of the created. Right. Clearly the created is like God in his image, but is gendered. Right. And, and, and good, right? So there's, there's um, historically, philosophically, there's this sense that, um, that although God declares humanity to be good, the way he has created it, there's something... There's something better about being like God. Um, but if you think about what it means to be a creature, it means very simply to be the way that you were created, right? And that is, that is the best thing for a creature. Not to be, not to be um, yes, God is better than you in all kinds of senses, right? Um, he's transcendent. But for you to be God would be 
horrible. It would not be good. Leslie. Oh, I was, I was just agreeing. Like, it's, it's obedience. Right. And that's what we were chronically suffering with, trying, not wanting to be obedient. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, we always like to play the margins, right? So and when it's, it, but it's remarkable how, just how far you can push it. Um, so when God doesn't say something explicitly, we're like, ah, oh, you know, he didn't, he didn't say that this is not okay. And then when things become possible, oh, well, if, if it, you know, medicine is, well, obviously medicine is okay. It's okay for me to change my body in certain ways, right? Um, and so we, you push the margin, but without, and what, what happens is the further you get from um, understanding yourself as a creature, and understanding as your relationship to God is as, as one of being spoken to, where God says things to you about who you are, um, the, the further you get into creating this world all of your own. And, I mean, so it, I think it's really helpful to notice that it's not just, that this is sort of a, an extreme or it's a poignant circumstance for us, a poignant situation for us to, to see this at play. But, again, it's, some, it's, what we, it's our fallacy all the time to say, um, Things must, God must not have meant for it to be like this, right? And I have a better idea about how it could be, and I, since I can change it, I'm going to. Um, I mean, that's dangerous, that's dangerous thinking. I watched a special a year ago about trans children, 10, 11, you know, before puberty, and the, the, the things that were faced, the families were facing, because these kids really wanted already to make choices. Yeah. To change their gender. And it, um, it was heartbreaking <laughs> because it, you, these kids really think this. Yeah. But one of the most compelling things at the end for me was um, th- well, the families were splitting up, like, where the dad was like, I don't want my son to become a dog. Like, right. He's t- 11. Like, yeah. can't decide that, but apparently you have to decide early because you get the hormones and everything. Like, well, at the very end, they interviewed someone who was, I think, 19. And it was sort of like, do you have any regrets? Like, hmm. you made the right decision. I don't even know if they used the word regrets, but it was like, do you feel like you made the right decision? And he was all kind of like, you could tell there was like this sad, like this like underlying sad. Yeah. But he was like, oh, yes, yeah, absolutely, I feel. And then his very last line was something like, maybe it would have been better if I waited until I was a little older. Like, that was the very last thing he said. And yeah. Going, Clearly, there's this conflict Right, right. Even though he's cho- chosen this at great um, right, sense. right, and what he thought was right, but I don't know. It was very. I started crying. I was like, because I could see that these people really do some sympathy. Yeah, abs- absolutely, right. This conflict, this huge conflict. People are willing to just change so much and give up so much to feel right. It, that's exactly right, and it is. You can't be unsympathetic to it. It is, it is the natural consequence of, of the way that we're told that we are masters of our, of our own fate, right? And so, I just went to a conference on uh, domestic violence, and the, the police were there and talking about the age of innocence. Sure. It used to be 14, like you couldn't prosecute somebody for a crime unless they were 14. They're moving it back to 10 and 8 because... But it's, it's the same thing. It's, you know, it, it, we're pushing back the age when you can decide. Right. It used to be 18, you're an adult, okay, you can make these decisions. Now it's like, move it back, keep moving it back, because we don't know what to do with these kids. Because sure. they're pressing. 
Right. And they're not able to make those decisions. Yeah. We have to adjust because of all the, the things that are happening. And the parents are then forced to make these. Yeah. In this case, they were. Mm -hmm. And they're getting pressure from society yeah. to choose yeah. Yeah. the right thing for their children because before it's too late. Yeah. But it's really, yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. so confusing. Yeah. It is. It's simpler to just say, you're not an adult. You, you can make the decision at 18, but we can't hold the line. We have to keep moving it back. Right. And, and, and part of that, again, has to do with, with moral authority. So we say, well, no, you know, kids um, have a difficult time telling the difference between right and wrong, right? Um, and how do they know? How do, you know? how do kids know that it's not okay to, you know, beat the heck out of each other? Well, they don't know it just intuitively. They know it because somebody teaches them that. Um, and, if, and if you are, if, if you're in a world where teaching kids that things are right and wrong is, you know, a little bit, frowned upon, then the force of that moral authority really wanes, and so you have to say, you have to say, well, they're not responsible anymore. Nobody taught them. Nobody, nobody told them, right? So let's, let's just push it back. Erin. It just reminds me how, like, going back all the way, the doctrine of original sin yeah. is so freeing. Right. If you believe humans are good, you're just trapped. So it's like, if you believe we're naturally good, then you're trapped obeying your feelings, and you're trapped obeying I, I think people look at the, the doctrine of original sin and they're like, how could you see a baby's born evil? What's wrong with you? And it's like, don't you see that that's actually freedom to, to believe? You're like, I'm naturally bad. I don't have to listen to all my questions. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, I should be skeptical of them, right? I should, I should think twice about it. Yeah. Good. Good. So let's take a step forward here. Um, there's, so many mo there's so many more interesting things to, to do. Here, number, here's number three. We're getting there. I would love to dig around a little bit in what you've learned about gender in, as you said, you know, your lifelong experiment with gender, whether you would have chosen that or not. Um, I found it as a woman, as somebody who's born female and always fit into the traditional binary categories, really interesting to read about your journey into becoming a woman and... Um, you know, a lot of things that were so new to you that are so basic and how the delight, right, that you took in them. I wonder, like, what did you, this, you know, it's always a fraught, this is always fraught territory, whether, you know, the transgender piece of this aside, talking about gender identity and what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. But, but we're all aware that, that gender means so much, so I want to wade into this dangerous territory. I mean, what, what did you start learning about being a woman, um, that surprised you? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. I want to back up to it. Okay. Because when I, um, most of my life, even though I didn't fit in the you're either a man or a woman system, that was still the only system that I had access to. So if I, when I thought about gender transition, I did articulate that to myself as becoming a woman. But through a lot of kind of agonizing reflection and experience, and, and really crucially through discussions with my now ex-wife while we were still married, she pointed out things that are very true, which is that you can't have a male body and live for 40 plus years as a man and be socialized male and ever become a woman in the sense that somebody who's born and socialized and mm -hmm. lives 
as a woman, as a female, is. And that's just, you know, that may sadden me, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It really is true. And um, when I started publishing about this, some of the comments, and I know we're never supposed to read comments online, but, <laughs> but some of the really hurtful comments were also really taught me a lot. They taught me women across the political spectrum from a deeply conservative to kind of radical feminist were saying the same thing. What they were saying in their comments was, listen, to me, woman means the whole package. It's not just biology, it's socialization, it's, you know, it's everything together, and I've suffered for that identity. Right. I've given it, it's taken on meaning for me through a lifetime in a world that really is inimical to women. And yet I've made that an identity that, you know, that I'm proud of, and you can't waltz in at 45 years old right. and take that word and that identity away from me. And I am not speaking for anybody other than myself, but, but I felt that they were right, and that I can't cut myself open and show that I have some sort of ineffable woman essence that's the same as other people's, you know, I, I don't even believe in such a thing. And, but what I can say that's factually true is I lived most of my life as a man, or a man that I thought I wasn't, and now I live as a woman that I know that I am. And that doesn't mean I am a woman, but I do live as a woman. I mean, I, you know, I've been cheated by an auto mechanic as a woman. Uh, I've been, you know, sweetied by people who are younger than I am, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so I get all that, you know, wonderful stuff. I think that I think that's a remark. That's a really very honest, striking admission, right? Finally, to say that he can never be a woman. He can only live as a woman, and um, this conflict between the, the 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 prevailing wisdom that being a woman is the whole package, right? Now it, it's interesting how his commentators parsed it out, right? It's it's biology and socialization, right? These these two facets of it, but again, like like a Lego man, they're not interchangeable parts, right? The whole package consists of not just biology and socialization, but in fact this ineffable womanhood that he's unwilling to admit exists, right? This is finally the reason why um, it, it's, it is grating for, for a woman to hear him come, uh, him come along at 45 years old and say, I'm a woman too, right? Aaron. So then, do you think he would say, well, if I had just been, if I hadn't been forced into this culturally, and as a two-year-old, I had liked dressing up in my dress-up things, and then people had realized, oh, this is actually a woman in a boy body. Like, and people had allowed me my whole life to live as a woman. Would he then? So, you know, I think that... Um, or he, he thinks there's more, because he says there's no enough. Right. I don't know. So that would be a really interesting question to pose. I think that... So that would solve the problem of socialization. That would solve the problem of his, his male vocal cords, right? Um, but it would not solve the problem of the fact that he had male biology to begin with, right? So, in some sense, you can only you can never be you can never be a man who has become a woman. You can only ever be a man who is living as a woman, right? I, I think that finally he would have to say that, even if it was a even if it was something that happened at a very early age. Um, 
It'd be, it'd be really interesting to find out and what that, what that means. Um, and why, if there's no such thing as this ineffable womanhood, how, how, do, you, how do you describe then what exactly the, the disparity between his body and his soul really looks like, right? I just was thinking, you know, perhaps it's the love what he misses, you know, because when he was a man, he fell in love and uh, um, he married and had children and now he's a woman. Um, where is the love what he can express? Yeah, right, right. That's, that's, that's yeah, and, and so I think, um, you know, Right. So, and here's the other the other side to this discussion, um, is that it's a very subjective and personal thing, or it has very p- real personal um, uh, applications, real personal um, consequences that you have to acknowledge. So we can't you can't just say transgenderism is you know as a thing we're gonna we're gonna address it like like a whole, but instead you've got to say well here's this here's this um, way that people manifest, again, um, their desire to be something, to be God, to be like their creator, or their desire to be in a community that was deprived, that they were deprived of, or their desire to have a family that they were deprived of. Um, it, it, it's, it's in that way, like so many other things um, that, that we turn to when our desires, our godly desires, are stunted or perverted, right? Go ahead, Marilyn. Well, as I think about this conversation, this is something that this man did, that he risked losing his children, Mm -hmm. his job. And I think a lot of these people, it's not just I want to dress up as a woman. I'm willing to risk everything I have to do that. Right. So... When you look at them and say, but this is wrong, I don't know. They've given up so much for this. How can you convince them that it's not right? It's not like our, not that there's categories of sin, but it's not like these little things that we want to be. I want to be the CEO or I want to whatever. This is something that is just so basic right? that it just, it's hard to put my... I, it's hard for me to even think about it. Right, I, I mean, and that's you again. You hit the nail on the head in terms of in terms of sympathy or compassion, right? So, um, what what compels a person to be willing to sacrifice all of these things that are so so obviously good? Um, it must be something really difficult, right? Um, and that's where. I mean, Jesus, his, uh, the, the verb that's regularly used of him in the New Testament, he was moved to compassion, right? He saw and he was moved to compassion. Um, that, as Christians, you know, that's, that's the instinct that we have to train ourselves towards because we have so many other instincts. Um, and, but it's, a, it's, an, it's a sort of an impossibly difficult question um, to, you know, how, how do you... How do you engage somebody, well, you don't know until you do it, right? Um, and that's, I mean, that's why, that's why so much of the rhetoric surrounding, the political rhetoric surrounding stuff like this is just, is just out of whack because it's, it doesn't, it's painful or it's um, prejudiced, you know, it's all of the things that are 
that are wrong with political discourse. And it's, this is where we as Christians have an opportunity to be compassionate, right? Um, go ahead, Barb. Oh, when she was talking about how a person feels and feels sorry for them because they're willing to give it all up. Somebody wants to commit suicide, they can do that because they feel like they need to, and then children can do it because they feel like, okay, I don't have anything more on the slide, it's my decision, it's me, right. I can kill myself. Or you kill older people because, well, what good are they? You're taking up space. Right. I mean, where do you end letting people just. <laughs> so, so, I, so, again, so, so he, I'll bear this in mind that it's. It's relatively easy it's, uh, to objectively step back and say, um, I can see where this is going. And, and so we should just pause for a second. It is, I'd say, impossible to do that when you're in the situation, right? I mean, this is why people do commit suicide. Not be, because they're not, they don't say, oh, you know, this might be a good, maybe it's the right thing to do, I'm not really sure. It's because they're not, they are unable to weigh everything and moreover, sometimes when you weigh things, when you're a consequentialist, when you weigh outcomes, you come to the wrong conclusion, right? You say it would be better if I were dead. This is just, it's become obvious. It would be better if I were dead. Um, uh, so, you know, sympathy for that, for, for the subjectivity of it, is really hard to muster, but it's also essential. You have to, you have to do that um, to know that, to know that when that you, that nobody can sort of see, but no, nobody can see beyond their horizon, the horizons of their experience, unless you are. This is where community and family are so important. Unless you're in something that broadens your horizons um, and does so appropriately, does so well. Um, if if you're if you're your own person, if you're an individual, if you're autonomous in the world, um, you have just your own experiences to go off of, and that's really tough. That's really, really tough. I love to read the New York Times magazine because it's so out there on the other side sometimes. Yeah. Really lear- I really learn so much about what's out there, and it helps me solidify my own thoughts. And I mean, yeah. because I'm like, I absolutely disagree with that, but I'm glad I know that that's out there. Right. Yeah. They're shocking to me. Right. But, uh, if, you don't, if you don't understand how like, a lot of the world thinks... Even just having children in college and what they're exposed to and the ideas that they come up with yeah. bring home, you're just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is, you know, again, that's one of, that's one of those instinctive responses. You've got to be kidding me, right? But it's... Yes, you just... I don't know. Yeah. You follow the rabbit trail and that's exactly where you would, really you would end up. I think through a lot of these things, I, so, or just know what's there. Yeah, yeah. So the, the question, so that you bring up suicide is interesting, Bob. And um, let's take a look at number five. We'll listen to number five. This was the one. This was the the segment that I heard when I was driving over to church, and this was the one that was most striking to me. It's it so many interesting things going on. I want to talk about the morality question, the morality of being transgender, and of this decision you made, which. Uh, Oh, I don't know when this subject comes up culturally or politically or religiously. It's a big issue, but it's really pretty simply framed, right? Is this a sin? Is it an abomination? Is it contrary to scripture or tradition? 
the morality of what you lived through and of your identity and your shift in your identity um, is something you've given a huge amount of thought to, and it's very complicated. There are layers and layers of ways to think about morality. I'd like to get into that. I mean, you, um, you know, well, let, let me just ask you that. If you think of the, the morality of what you've been through, you know, where do you begin to bucket up at that thicket? You know, I'd like to add another term to the list. The secular world also provides moralizing terms for transgender people, and that the one that is most frequently heard is selfish. Huh. Um, you're selfish. Your, your gender, unlike everybody else's gender, your gender is hurting people. Huh. You don't have to, you know, everybody else, I, I'm, I'm guessing, some people too, you know, there are gender fluid people who wake up in the morning and say, hmm, uh, what gender identity shall I present this morning? But for most of us, we get up and we decide about gender expression. How will I express being a man or how will I express being a woman? But we don't think, hmm, should I be a man or a woman? It's far too central to our identities for that thought even to occur to us. Right. And it's really the same for me. I don't have any other gender to be. But because I lived so long as a man and because everybody was perfectly happy <laughs> with that guy, um, it looks to people like a choice, and it's clearly a choice that was terrible for my family. Um, it was terrible for my wife. It broke up my marriage, broke up my children's home. It created, at the very least, confusion and um, social complications that continue to this day. And, you know, it really wasn't good for anybody particularly except for me. And so if I chose to do something that was bad for everybody but me, that's an act of radical, even like sociopathic selfishness. Mm. But to me, as I say, there was no one else that I could be. It wasn't a selfish choice. It was, there was the choice between, you know, living and dying. Okay. And I did, you know, I romanticized suicide. I thought that clearly was the selfless choice because it's the choice to you know, kill myself for the sake of others. But um, therapists kept arguing that children with parents who've committed suicide are, you know, messed up in ways okay. that go far beyond what happens to children when their parent transitions from one gender to another, but is still there. Uh, as one therapist put it, you have to stay alive so your children can reject you. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Wow, this is the way you're talking me out of killing myself. This is tough love. So the framing of the discussion really takes on, um, you, you start to get to the core of it here, um, and we'll see a little bit more of it in the next section. It's, the, it's, it's for him not a choice between being a man or being a woman. It's a choice between living and dying. Essentially, he says that when he was uh, living as a man, he was not really living. Um, which is, I think, um, you know, it's a, it, I think that that's probably a common experience for other reasons, right? You find yourself in circumstances, and this is the reason why people commit suicide, right? You find yourself in circumstances where you say, I'm not really living right now. Not really, the way that I, the way that I am right now, this is not really living, and there's no there's no other way out. Um, 
So, I mean, for whatever, whatever you know, that entails, um, the experience uh, is, so, is that dramatic. Um, so now, here's where, here's where Christian theology comes in um, to the rescue. Original sin being one part of it, right? So you can say, you can, instead, of, instead of saying, um, blaming something outside of myself, you can say, well, there, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm at fault for the, for the suffering in my life, right? Because, because I'm a sinner. We sinners are responsible for the suffering of the world. But then also to say that suffering is not, um, that enduring suffering is a good, right? That uh, being in a situation where you don't feel like you're really living is in fact what it is to be a Christian, right? To be dying all the time. Um, and finally, we have that experience as Christians when we say, you know, God tells me who I ought to be, what kind of a perfect person I ought to be, how I ought to love people, and I stink at it. Um, isn't the Teddy, who, five, little five-year-old Teddy, who likes to push things to their logical conclusions, says, I hope I die soon so that I can go to, go to heaven to be with Jesus, right? Um, because, he, because he sees, he perceives that something's not right about the situation right now. Um, and that, you know, I, so this is, this is the, the, the way things are for us as Christians. Um, this is the glory of heaven too, right? So that finally you'll be um, living and not, and not just dying all the time. Um, if there's, if there's, there are lots of reasons to study this, lots of reasons to think about um, the question who is woman and about anthropology, what it means to be human. But one of the main reasons is to know, to understand your relationship to this world, to this life, um, to know what God intended for you from the beginning and also what sin has done to you um, and the, hope, the, hope, the only hope that you have out of it. Because um, that is a terrible dilemma, right? A terrible dilemma that he presents. Do you have any questions? There's, yeah, Krista. I'm sorry to just, but uh, uh, at the end, it's sin. Yeah. Um, you know, that was in our quarterlies, what we have for the Romans missionary. And I just told uh, Lindsay, um, that was that, was that uh, a pastor and um, a lady who is working in church uh, 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 said that they had this kind of temptation. And, uh, uh, and at the end, they came to the conclusion, it is sin. Right. It's a, a sin like, um, like uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, just stealing or killing. Right. And that gives me a little, um, uh, a, a kind of, um, uh, that I said, I, because, you know, you always have um, compassion, and you, I think you should, but only that, you know, at the end... It's so now here's what I'd say. I, I think that, so it's certainly true. It's true. And we ought to say, we call a thing what it is. This is what it is to be a Lutheran. You call a thing what it is. Sin is sin. Uh, pastorally, and, and in your relationship with, among yourselves and with other Christians, you know that every situation is subjective, right? So, and also that um, repentance is uh, repentance does not mean that you that does not mean that you 
succeed in stopping sin. That you succeed in sinning no longer. So in some, it, it, is, it is helpful in some, in some way at some point in any discussion with somebody who's caught in sin to say, this is sin and it's going to kill you finally, right? That's what sin does to you. It's going to kill you. There's, there are times, though, when saying that, um, for instance, when somebody is pushing back against sin, when they're stuck in sin but they're pushing against it, right? When saying, you know, one more time, this is sin, is not going to accomplish anything, right? Uh, because they've, they've heard the damning word of the law and they're pushing back with the help of the Holy Spirit and so what they need is encouragement. They need the gospel, right? So, so... Um, it depends on who you're talking to, whether it's the final word or not, right? Um, and that is a, uh, a conversation that pastors have all the time. You know, what, and I don't ever want to be responsible for, although, I mean, although it happens, it's a terrible thing to be responsible for having that be the final thing you say. No, this is sin. Um, so we try and avoid it at all costs, right? <laughs> you look for every, every sign of hope that you can, that somebody is pushing against it and you... You cling to that, right? Because um, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, nobody, nobody, I mean, even, you could go even, I would go even so far as to say, you know, the fact that um, this fella is not just completely convinced that, that everything worked out perfectly, that is such a hopeful thing. Because if he thought that he, he turned the key and he figured things out and got things right, that would be, dev- that would be, a, that would be a really hard thing to recover from. But there is in his life this dissonance, which is, um, that's the work of the law, natural law. That's the work of the, the God's law in the world, telling him that something's not right. And whether he acknowledges it or not, you can't say until you talk to him, right? Um, so, you know, it's a fine line. It's a balancing act, being a Lutheran, being a Christian, calling a thing what it is, saying sin is sin, and loving people um, as, as Jesus loved them. Uh, and I thank God that he forgives pastors too because we don't get it right all the time. And that his Holy Spirit goes to work on people um, in spite of us. Take a look. Let's, t- let's turn. Um, there's one more thing we've got to do. I, and this really comes back to the, discussion, the discussions you've had with Pastor Nelson about... Um, Bodies and original nakedness, and um, so we're looking. At number, we're going to do number five. Oh no, number we did number five. Let's do number four. Sorry, back up. Number four. I have to say that one of the um, things to read when I was reading your about your transition that um, was kind of painful as a woman is uh, and so familiar was this, and how important it becomes how you look. Now, look, I have a 14-year-old son, and it's really important how he looks, so I'm seeing that from another <laughs> side then, too. But it's different, right? There's a, and, and how some of these most wonderful moments that you really needed and that I got them is when somebody told you you looked beautiful, and I think your mother told you you looked beautiful, maybe your dean, and just recognizing, and, and again, it makes me a little sad how we need that. Um, mm-hmm. That, and so, but for you, I mean, those were just radiant moments of, of acknowledgement and, uh, 
and for me it was like, oh, this difficult dailiness of, you know, being female. Um, it's very interesting. You know, I, I think that that's one of the terrible things that we do to girls and women in this culture is that we stare at them. It's also terrible to not be seen. Hold on just one second there. That is, I mean, that is just a crucial pair of sentences. It's terrible the way we stare at them. It's also terrible not to be seen. Okay? Hang on to that thought. Um, of attractiveness of when, what we judge when we judge girls and women beautiful often, I think, don't feel to girls and women like they're being seen as who they are. Yeah. I was just starved, though, to be visible to anybody. I, you know, I you, okay, we'll stop there because we're getting, we're going over time here. But uh, this, think about what you learned about original, uh, about nakedness, shameless nakedness, and naked without shame, right? So he hits the nail on the head in the way that we look at people, right? We look at them not as they actually are, and it's a terrible thing not to be seen as you actually are. Um, and this is why we wear clothing, right? <laughs> because when you see a person's body, you see them, but if you are um, a fallen, sinful person, you make of that what you will, right? Um, and this is the, the great uh, description of, in Eden of original nakedness. So Adam and Eve saw each other, and they, they, when they saw each other's bodies, they saw each other, not some objectification or... Uh, some, you know, some other perversion of it, um, but they actually saw each other. Now, he hits the nail on the head saying, it's a terrible thing not to be seen, which I think is probably um, points to a lot, of, uh, a lot of challenges that people face, right? Feeling as though and actually experiencing that you are not seen or not seen for who you are. Now, in his case, he says, it's, not, it's that I was not seen as a woman, right? That's what, the, that's what was lacking. Um, for us, we say, you know, I see, if I'm going to look at somebody, if I'm going to see somebody, what am I going to see? I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to see the image of God, um, which is far better than being seen as what you think you are or what you, uh, what you aren't. Um, and really, it's, it's the dilemma that we face in this world, right? That nobody looking at me, nobody looking at me, no matter how I present myself, sees me. Nobody sees the person because, uh, because of how, how corrupt we are. Um, but you as Christians have the eyes of faith through which you, you see Jesus, and you also know that Jesus sees you through his sacrifice. God the Father sees you through his sacrifice, um, and there, there again is the great hope um, to this really crucial problem. It's a, it's a, this is at the root of a lot of psychological um, trauma that people endure is not not being seen. Um, so what you know, what do you do about that? Well, he says in his case, it's to be, it's to present himself as he actually is. Um, but uh, you know, again, it has its limits. You can do, you can do all you want to be the kind of person that you wish people thought you were, to present yourself in that way. But finally, you're, you're not that person, right? You're not that person on your own. Um, and so finally, so finally you, run it, you, hit it, you run into a wall.
Okay, now I'm just going on and on. You have any questions? Any other thoughts? Okay. Next time, section four of uh, John Paul's document here on Eve and Mary. Okay? We'll see what happens. Pastor Nelson will be back with you then. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, thank you.